0: All right, everybody. All right, all right. Hey, can I grab your attention, please? Amazing. Hey, I know you guys are all just getting comfortable, but would you please stay standing for our scripture reading? Today's reading comes from 1 John chapter 1.
1: Okay. This is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light In him, there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify purify us from all unrighteousness this is the word of the lord
0: praise be to god have a seat so katie mentioned this a moment ago but our 11 a.m gathering is oftentimes much lighter so if you like just like keep that in mind for next week but Jesus didn't come to earth to just tell you a story. Jesus came to earth to be the hero of the story. And he came to invite you into the greatest love story of all time. And you are in it, or at least you can be. Luke chapter 7 captures the drama of the story that Jesus' life is telling. And it compares those who get it and who opt in to loving union with him and those who think they get it, but in actuality, they totally miss out. So in Luke chapter seven, Jesus is having dinner with a Pharisee and a bunch of his, the Pharisees' friends. And these were the like in group of Israel at the time. The people at this dinner were well connected, they had social and political status. They were also the moral arbiters of their society. They had put themselves in charge of who was clean enough to take part in the rhythms of worship at the local synagogue and the temple in Jerusalem. So this group was largely responsible for creating a culture of religious elitism that Jesus strongly opposed. And Jesus was gaining all kinds of grassroots popularity in Israel at the time, so this was becoming a big problem for them. So this invitation to dinner by the Pharisee is nothing more than like a a thinly veiled excuse to somehow discredit Jesus's miracles and his teaching. And we're told that there was a woman who was a prostitute who found out that Jesus was at, at the Pharisee's house. And if you think that shame around sexual sin is intense today... In first century Jewish culture, this woman was completely excluded and ostracized from the religious life of her people. She was too unclean. She was too full of sin. She was an open embarrassment to her community. And yet, despite the fact that this woman is painfully aware that she is unwelcome at the Pharisee's house, she has this burning hope inside of her that if she can just work her way through and get to Jesus... She'll be forgiven and restored. So she pushes her way through the group of invited guests, the people who are like openly disgusted with her. And the scripture tells us she falls at Jesus' feet. She breaks down sobbing. She kisses him. She pours out perfume onto his feet and then she wipes Jesus' feet with her hair. And the Pharisees are thrilled by this because now they have their like political ammo to discredit Jesus. If Jesus were truly a prophet, they said, he would know who this woman was and he would never let her touch him. But Jesus cuts through all of that social politic and he tells them about the way that things really are, not from the lens of their corrupt religious system, but through the lens of God's kingdom. And he says there are these two kinds of people there's the people who think that they're pretty moral and pure, and their love is small, and that's you. And then Jesus looks and talks about the woman. He says, and then there's a second group of people. The second group of people knows that they are desperate sinners, and they love a lot, and that's her. And this is Jesus's mic drop moment. He says, I tell you that her sins are many, but they've been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. And then Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. In other words, there's something about the presence of Jesus that draws the desperate sinner to come to him for salvation and healing. And the woman was willing to endure what she knew she would get, from the religious elites because she was confident. If I could just get through them, and if I could just get to Jesus, then he'll give me grace. And when I think about the staggering amount of people with sexual brokenness in our time, I think about this story and how God wants to set us free from the power of sin in the exact same way. And I also think about how God wants to make us, Riverbend Church, a refuge for the hurting and a hospital for the sick. We want to become a community that shows others how to experience the love and the forgiveness that Jesus alone can give, not a toxic culture of religious elitism. Think of it like this. The Pharisees, they were really devoted to their purity laws and they probably followed them pretty well. All accounts suggest that they do. But Jesus takes it a step further. He's actually sexually whole and pure. The scripture tells us he never sinned. But the Pharisees, man, that that purity culture that they were a part of and responsible for creating kept people away from God. And kept people wallowing in their shame around sexual brokenness. But Jesus' heart of love draws people to true forgiveness and, uh, and he draws people into real purity. And because of that presence from Jesus, this woman had the courage to step forward into the light and to confess. She was saved, she was healed. And this is the essence of our text today from 1 John, and it's also the essence of what it means to be a community that is radically devoted to sexual formation, which is what we're heading into as a church. 1 John 1, 7, we just read it. Here it is again. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Now, I'm going to explain that to you in just a minute, but first we need to recap where we've been. Okay, last week I decided to skip the the disclaimers to save time and I found out through some feedback from some of you, I probably should not have done that. And uh, so uh, I realized that was probably a mistake. So please forgive me if you were here last week and I said something that was insensitive to your situation or maybe I caught you off guard or something like that. Also, forgive me today if I'm repeating myself and you're going, I don't like it when he does that either. It's just, you know, sometimes, You can't please everybody, but my goal is to simply speak the truth in love. So this is part three of three in a mini-series on sexual integrity. We made it. We survived it. You guys are gluttons for punishment. You came back for week three. And personally, I, you know this, I haven't been personally that excited to talk with you about this. My bloodline is mainly German and British, which is not exactly romantic cultures. I'm uh, like sexually repressed, and I get uncomfortable just listening to R&B music. Like this is... Not my scene, okay? Not my scene. And yet, although we would like, rather not go there, we intuitively know that avoiding the topic of sexual brokenness won't make the problem go away. And instructions on sexual formation are everywhere in the scriptures, and we have a personal policy here, a value, a virtue that we never want to censor the scriptures. And so we will tell you what the scripture says, and we'll teach it with conviction. We also have seen like a really big need in our church. Many men and women have come forward to confess and ask for support in the area of sexual sin, So we have to talk about this, and that's why we're doing it. Next, these talks are really just a primer for our sexual recovery community. We don't want to get really good about talking about sex, having the tough talk. We want to actually live out a vision for sexual wholeness that Jesus gives us. So launching October 15th, we're starting this ministry called Pure Desire. Pure Desire is a ministry that's based out of Portland. It's helped thousands of people and thousands of churches in the area of unwanted sexual sin. And like Katie mentioned a minute ago, we are calling all of you who, if this is your issue, we want to call you to the info night next week and you will learn very specifically the next steps that you need to take to begin this journey. And uh, we are curating a very confidential, safe space for you to come uh, so that we promise not to expose you and anything like that. It's very, very confidential, but we want to encourage you now is the time to start your journey of recovery and formation. Next, our conviction is that we need like courageous Christian orthodoxy on the topic of sex. So secular culture is aggressively redefining sex in our cultural moment. We believe that the porn industry and Hollywood is, spent, uh, is spreading lies about sex and they're very harmful and destructive uh, to the body and to the soul and to the mind as we're going to find today. And the shame-based moralistic view uh, that is in a lot of Christianity doesn't actually really help. But the truly biblical view says that my sexuality is a part of a much larger sacred story that culminates in the new heaven and the new earth when Jesus returns and we're united with him as his bride. Glenn Harrison in his book, A Greater Story or A Better Story says the Bible doesn't teach that there's no marriage in heaven, it teaches that there's one marriage in heaven between Jesus and his church. In other words, our sexuality is pointing towards the true intimacy and union that we ultimately long for to be filled in relationship with Jesus. So this, in other words, the secular story does not get it right. So when we talk about our ethic and when we talk about sexual wholeness and our uncompromising fidelity to Jesus in the area, uh, in the area of, of, of sex, we're, we're talking about wanting to live into how he designed you to f- flourish in the first place. So despite the sort of distorted views of sex from our culture, we want what's best for you and we think what's best for you is following Jesus's ethic. Number four, don't get the wrong idea. We're not on a soapbox here. We're not like pointing out what's wrong with and condemning Western culture like Westboro Baptist Church or something like that. We do believe that the world has gotten it wrong about sex, but we're primarily interested in how the world's view of sex has infiltrated the church. And we are here to talk about what you do with your body and who you are becoming as a consequence of what you're doing with your body. And then once we've removed the log from our own eye, then Jesus permits us to comment on broader society with integrity and holy credibility. Next, we want this to be an encouragement to you, not another source of pain. And we know that there have been many of you here who have been victims of sexual abuse or you were exposed to porn early in life or you've experienced some kind of trauma that has led to various forms of sexual dysfunction in your life today. And statistically, we know that you are all here. Women, men, Gen Z, boomer, same-sex attracted, straight, married, single, divorced, widowed, we see you. You're not alone and we're here for you. And like the woman who was able to like, push through the unsympathetic crowd of religious people to get to Jesus, there is hope for you and your story as well. Now, you may have noticed that the stories of transformation that we're sharing here from the platform are married couples uh, where the man has unwanted sexual sin and the wife is dealing with the betrayal of that. And we know that that is just one archetype. And we know that there are many of you who do not fit that mold and you're dealing with sexual sin or you're dealing with sexual betrayal. And we don't want you to be alone or isolated either. And we have resources and we have community for you too. And we've just simply shared the stories that we are currently aware of, the front runners in our community that we've had the advantage and the benefit of seeing God do a work of healing firsthand over the last couple of years. And we're starting to hear more of those stories now as we've made it through most of the series at this point. And we trust that in time, there is going to be many more stories of transformation that reflect the more diverse community that we actually are. Does that make sense? Okay, I think we covered it. So uh, what the woman in Luke 7 got right is what the Apostle John in his letter lays out for us. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. And then in verse nine, he qualifies what it means to walk in the light. If you confess with your sin, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there are several instructions here, but we just have to understand the composite picture that John is trying to paint for us. First of all, at the beginning of this whole section, he says God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. So if you've read A.W. Tozer who says, what you think about God is the most important thing about you, I would qualify that a little bit, but I think he's mostly right. What you think about God is one of the most important things about you. And so God is good, and we're told that in him is no darkness at all. He doesn't have a mean streak. He doesn't have an evil side. He's not Hiding things to you about himself. This is an important premise and an important statement if we're going to walk in purities. We need to believe accurately, clearly in who God actually is. Next, if we claim to be in relationship with God in the biblical paradigm, that means we're united and connected to God by his spirit, and we're also continuing to walk in sin. John says that we're lying. We're lying. So what are we supposed to do with that? Like, I thought we were all sinners and all have fallen short of the glory of God, yes? Yeah, totally, absolutely. So does that mean that we're all liars in the language of 1 John? Definitely not. Here's what this is actually saying. So the specifics of the Greek grammar, which we don't have time for today, uh, suggests actually uh, that it's referring to like willful, habitual, unrepentant sin. So what we're doing by staying in the darkness is we're keeping our sin in the dark and we're putting on an act with God and with others. And C.S. Lewis in his book composed of his letters called Yours Jack, he wrote about this issue as it relates to sexual sin. And this is like at the end of a long letter that's written to a young man who's dealing with this kind of struggle. And he says this, after all, almost the main work of life is to come out of the self, out of the dark prison that we're born in masturbation is to be avoided as all things are to be avoided, which retard that process. And the danger is that of coming to love the prison. So in other words, we all sin, and we have all been given the offer of forgiveness through Jesus. The sin that actually makes us a liar is keeping that sin hidden and continuing to sin without repentance. And it's completely unnecessary because of the cross, and it also keeps us from union with Christ that we actually crave and long for. The danger, according to Lewis, and I think we can back this up biblically, is that we end up craving the false security of darkness instead of union with Christ. And that's when we become really deformed and unable to walk in the light and enjoy relationship with him. Now, we've covered a similar idea uh, a few weeks ago from Galatians chapter 5, where we explored this idea that when we just do whatever we want and whatever feels good, like our culture tells us, is actually freedom. In the biblical paradigm, it's the opposite. It's slavery to desire and our unchecked desires become compulsive and become like compulsions, and compulsions left unchecked eventually turn into addiction. And addiction is a word that we're using intentionally here. Now we have the benefit of understanding a lot of how the brain works, and we can understand the science of addiction, And many of you are already familiar with this, but it's important for us to, as we close out this series, to talk a bit more about the the grace-filled, spirit-filled process that God wants to use in order to set you free. So I'm just gonna share with you very quickly about two minutes or so of just the basics of the neuroscience behind what's going on when when you are dependent on behaviors like viewing porn and other sexual brokenness. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter in the brain that plays a central role in the brain's reward center known as the VTA. And dopamine is associated with like feelings of pleasure and motivation and reinforcement of certain behaviors and things like this. And dopamine release when things are functioning normally in your brain is actually a really, really good thing. But here's how dopamine dependency develops as you continue to view things like porn and other sexual brokenness. Uh, The first stage or step of it is uh, dopamine release and pleasure. So when a person views something like pornography or engages in a, or engages in sexual activity, it triggers the release of dopamine in the brain and there's a surge of dopamine and it's a natural response to pleasurable stimuli and it's actually meant to reinforce behavior, it's part of our hardwiring as a human being. And the initial dopamine release creates like a sense of pleasure and reward. Again, this isn't necessarily bad, it's only when it's connected to sexual sin. Neural pathways and habit forming is stage two. So over time, what happens is that the brain forms these neural pathways in response to repeated behaviors and experiences. So the repeated exposure to porn leads to coming back for more and more, particularly in times of stress or when we're dealing with pain. And studies have shown repeatedly that this is especially true for those who are exposed to pornography early in life when the prefrontal cortex is not fully formed and developed. And this is particularly true, and it would explain why this has become such a pervasive issue in our time, because most of us came of age at the beginning of the internet era. The next stage is tolerance and desensitiz- desensitization. And this is a little bit of trigger warning here. This, some of this is, um, yeah, a bit dark. But with continued exposure to pornography, many people develop like a tolerance, meaning that over time, they require much more like explicit or extreme content to achieve the same level of arousal and pleasure. And a recent study done by Stanford University has shown that HD video porn in the age of the internet has led to a rapid and alarming increase, even exponential increase of violent porn that makes things like Playboy that maybe your dad grew up with or you grew up with or something like that seem extremely tame. And there's a lot of this research that's been published uh, by an organization called Fight the New Drug. If you wanna look that up later and take a peek, um, that is some really important research that help explain the situation that we find ourselves in today. The next stage is what we call cravings and compulsive behavior. So that strengthened neural pathway just continues from porn and then it leads to more intense cravings for more and it becomes compulsive and this is when it becomes something out of the realm of our control. And these cravings are driven by the anticipation of that dopamine release and over time, again, it's becoming much, much more difficult to control. The next stage, second to last stage, is what we call like withdrawal symptoms. When you don't then go back or you try to cut back on, on porn or something like that, People who are addicted find themselves experiencing withdrawal symptoms, like, that are both physiological and psychological. These things can include anxiety, irritability, a strong urge to, like, return back uh, to that habit in order to alleviate that discomfort. And uh, this may explain, you know, we might be having light bulbs going off in the room here, and this might actually be explaining Uh, why it is that you've had such a hard time stopping the negative unwanted behavior. This is the final stage that we're gonna talk about here and that's the idea of altered brain structure. So eventually, again, studies have shown this, that chronic porn use can lead to changes in the brain structure and function. They've shown that alterations in the prefrontal cortex have occurred and that is particularly uh, important as it relates to decision making and impulse control. So these, these, these changes that are happening in your brain that can contribute to difficulties and things like self-regulation and just being able to operate normally and function normally in your life. So many, many, many people are fighting a losing battle because we were exposed to porn at a young age and we've been just trying to like modify our behavior and we've been trying to modify our behavior in secret. So this is yet another reason why we have said over the last couple of weeks that our discipleship paradigm in following after Jesus, it has to go deeper than just calling out the sinful behavior and saying, don't do it, try harder next week. What we need is to do what the scripture tells us in Romans chapter 12 and verse two. Do not be conformed according to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. So in other words, what we need is we need practices from the way of Jesus, things that he's taught us that are aimed at actually that deep core level of who you actually are and the rewiring of your brain. We need to like curate our attention onto God. And eventually, over time, as we are in recovery, we are able to find our ultimate satisfaction on him. And another fact about the brain, of course, is that it's plastic. It's moldable. And we've found that you can actually form new neural pathways. It takes a lot of intentionality and these recovery communities. But these recovery communities are centered around the practices of Jesus that get us to actually be rewired from, and transformed from the inside out. And so we need these practices to transform us at the core of who we actually are, not just modify our behavior in secret. And this is what the Ministry of Pure Desire is all about. A lot of the tools and a lot of the practices that you do in Pure Desire, they go by a different name in the 21st century, but these are actually practices that have been around in the church for sometimes millennia, things like meditating on scripture, Confession, community, and things like this. What we know to be certain from the scriptures and also the data would suggest this, that the option of staying in the darkness is just not really an option at all. See, the consequences of lying about our sin to God is that we're actually doing something. I think this is what the language of First John is trying to say. When we lie to God about our sin, what we're actually doing is we're lying to ourselves about how intimacy works. God knows what's going on in your heart. He knows everything that's going on in your heart. We're actually trying to delude ourselves into thinking that we can still have intimacy with God without being honest. We're pretending that true intimacy is possible while keeping parts of ourselves hidden. And the results are, to that, is a tragic lifestyle where we, where we like believe in our head about the promises of God, but we don't actually get to experience the victory of Jesus and true union with him. And this is very, very problematic. We don't actually have, like verse six tells us, fellowship with God that we actually want. And I think that this is sort of the torment that's going on inside of the woman from Luke seven when she was, uh, before she met Jesus. She's like overcome by this sexual shame. What is my future given all of my past? How come I keep doing this and I keep returning back to it? This is not the life that I want. And then in this act of courage, she decided to not love the darkness, but instead she chose to step into the light by turning to Jesus, and she confessed her sin. Notice that verse seven in in 1 John says that as we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we walk in the light as he is in the light. So it can be a really scary thought, and I just wanna appreciate that for a moment. It can be a really scary idea for us to come into the light to confess our sin. But the light is where Christ is. The light is where Christ is. He wants to save, he wants to heal you, but he does not follow you into your own delusions about your sin. God, that's not how he operates. It's just not how it works. He keeps telling you the truth about what's real, and then he keeps inviting you to join him in the light. So think of it like this. You don't have to break the power of sin yourself. He does that. You don't have to pay the price for your sin. He does that. You don't have to purify yourself. He does that. But he's calling you to come out of hiding, and he's there in the light to forgive you and to make you whole. Tyler Staten in praying like monks living like fools writes this the alternative to hiding is the refusal to hide the terrifying insistence on exposing ourselves to god and the only way that we open ourselves up to that's the only way that we open ourselves up to unconditional love And he says this ever wonder what made david a man after god's own heart that's the phrase inscribed on his tombstone but read his bio he was also a liar, manipulator, adulterer, maybe rapist, depending on how you weigh the evidence, and a murderer. So what was it about his life that made him his heart like God's? Only this. The Psalms he authored were peppered with personal confessions, honest, unfiltered, raw nakedness before God. He was a long way from perfect, but he refused to hide. And when he realized that he was naked, He didn't pick up fig leaves. He ran to the Father. I think that perfectly encapsulates the idea of biblical confession. Do not believe the lie that the darkness is safe. Do not believe the lie that you can manage your sin habit and maintain appearances. Don't believe the lie that you can still have the spirit-filled, intimate, loving relationship with God that you crave while you're staying deluded about your sin. Don't believe the lie that no one has sinned as badly as you have. Don't believe the lie that that grace is promised but what you're actually gonna receive is more shame and condemnation. Believe the truth, believe the truth. When we walk in the light as he is in the light, the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. See, your story of transformation begins with a refusal to hide and a decision to run to the Father. I remember when I was 16 years old, I got my driver's license and uh, I had uh, great little cars, little BMW that my Dad had driven for a bunch of years and he gave it to me. I was so thrilled about this car and predictably like a 16-year-old, I just drove that thing like it was stolen and I just went hard and uh, drove uh, uh, really irresponsibly until one day um, I actually ended up in a really bad accident where I I, uh, lost control of the car around the turn. The pavement was wet, suburbs of Portland, and I slid off the road and down an embankment smashed into a tree. This same time, In my life, I wanted to be super independent. I wanted to think that my parents didn't have any wisdom or whatever. And I was constantly trying to like be my own man or my own person or whatever, even though I was still dependent on them for almost everything. And in that moment of like real desperation, the first thing that I did, even though I had been, you know, again, trying to differentiate myself from my father, the first thing that I did was like, this is outside the scope of what I can fix. I, I, like the fact that I'm alive right now, the fact that I'm not you know, going to the hospital, this car is completely ruined. I called him before he even called 911 for help because I knew that he is the one who could actually come to my side and he would actually love me for me and he would actually help me despite I had made a complete mess of it. And that is the invitation to come into the light, is to trust in him. It's a refusal to hide, a decision to run to the Father. Here's how we close. Notice that he says, when we walk in the light, we have, also we have fellowship with one another. This is similar to the instruction from James chapter five. Therefore confess your sins to each other, pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. So when the scriptures promise healing, and that he actually wants to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, we sometimes make the mistake that he's saying that he's just like the wave of a magic wand or something like that and poof, it's all gone. No, he's saying that the blood of Jesus, the actual concrete event when Jesus went to the cross, he cancels the debt of our sin in heaven and he breaks the power of evil over us. That's what the scripture says actually happens. And then also it unites us with the family of God, which we call the ecosystem for transformation or spiritual formation. Again, this is not an abstract idea. This is concrete in the family of God. We grow and we are transformed in the community of the spirit. So as long as we keep our sin hidden, we're sort of fighting this battle that we cannot win alone and in the dark. But, but as soon as we confess our sin to each other, we have the blessing of support. We have things like what we call like a network of care, a counselor, a pastor, a mentor, and a community of peers. People who have sympathy for what you're going through, have compassion, they they will keep you accountable, they will pray for you. All of the promises of scripture, we're not gonna get it perfect, it is not perfect, don't let me paint that picture for you. But at least you have some people on the journey with you. We believe that the community of grace, uh, the community of the faith is the grace that God wants to use to bring about change and transformation in your life. And you're gonna hear a story, another story of transformation and a testimony of that here in a second. So. We're about to wrap this series, three weeks of 53 in 2023, and we're about to move on to some other stuff towards the end of the year, Advent, community, things like that. And for some of you, this is just not your issue, and you're pretty much ready to move on. You're like, okay, great, awesome. Yeah, keep, keep my sexual ethic on the straight and narrow. <laughs> Fantastic. Hopefully, you've grown in compassion for the sexual brokenness in the community around you as we've had this series, and perhaps your job is to simply just pray, to pray for God's people, the people that God loves who are dealing with this issue, and to stay really vigilant in your own sexual purity. But I am aware, if the statistics are even remotely true, that there are many, many, many of you here in the room who this is your issue, and that we just wanna tell you that there excuse me there will never be a better time in this church than right now to step into the light because we are putting as many resources as possible all of the best resources that we know into this ministry of recovery and we are leveraging all of the right people to be launching this community of recovery right now here at the end of 2023 and we want to become a church that is fully consecrated to God and living into his vision of hope-filled holiness. And this is the moment for you. This is the time for you to step into the light. The question is just whether or not you will join us, whether you will put this off for another year or something like that. And my hope and my hope and the hope of those who've gone before you, the front runners in our community is like, don't wait. Don't let another Year go by, or even another month go by. Take this opportunity to step into the light and begin the healing journey. This is a culture of grace. You're not going to find an unsympathetic community of religious elites here. That's not what you're going to find. You're going to find a culture of grace, and we are leaning into the spirit-filled process of transformation that is anchored in the scripture and anchored in church history. So, Lord is calling you. He's calling all of us into the deep, and he's. He, it's. 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 The time is is now, it's right here, and it involves you. We don't want to go on this journey without you, particularly if you're dealing with this. And um, like Katie mentioned, we have little really super discreet invite cards um, on the connect table at the coffee in the back, just so that if you are interested, you can just snag one of those really quickly and register through a QR code. Again, zero shame. Lord's calling us into deep, and you are welcome. All are welcome whatever you find yourself in. This is at its core still a gospel issue. One of the primary reasons I have been driven into this as your pastor is because I want to see a spiritual awakening in our time. I wanna see your neighbors, your coworkers, your family, your friends come to faith in Jesus. And intuitively, we understand that we cannot do this if there are idols in our hearts that we are harboring. And we're sending the wrong message if we're still enslaved to sin. How will the world know that the gospel of Jesus has power to save and to redeem? The world will know because we are transformed. We're transformed sexually, but we're made whole in every category of our life. How will we be keeping the sacred fire burning in the 2020s and the 2030s? Only if we are a fully consecrated church. We want to be the place in Central Oregon where people can come and not be seen as a sexual object we wanna be a place where people can come in Central Oregon where we begin as a community of agape and in some cases we end with eros in, in faithful n- monogamy. We wanna become the kind of church that is able to bear one another's burdens and help people get free. And we also wanna have a burning heart of love for the people outside of this, of, of this building right now. And we intuitively know that once the Lord has all of us Once the Lord has all of us, then there's nothing stopping that community from forming and being shaped right here in Central Oregon. But it has to start with our purity. It has to start with us consecrating ourselves to God. And then this is how it would end. Ultimately, we are aching for the return of Jesus. We are aching for the return of Jesus. And all of our longings, sexual and otherwise, are orienting us towards that new creation. That one day when we are fully reunited with Christ in the new heaven and earth. So allow, like Glenn Harrison says, allow those desires to be a humming beacon for the divine. And would you just join our community in praying, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done in my body and on this earth as it is in heaven. So with that, I wanna invite some of our front runners up here to the platform. If this is your first week in our sexual integrity series, all along we've been sharing stories of transformation to just share what God has done because we believe that through the telling of stories we actually see, um, yeah, just the the, the power of God's goodness. And so we have several more of those stories that we actually wanna share as we close. Uh, So I'm going to invite up here uh, two couples, actually, who you're going to hear a bit from before we're done. Would you please join me in welcoming Sebastian, Chloe, Sarah, and Chris? (laughs) All right, we're just getting set here. And as you do, I just, again, want you to just think about the implications of these people being willing to share this very intimate, very personal part of themselves with you. Um, We honor the four of them, and we encourage you to honor them as well. So we're going to start with Chloe and Sebastian. Would you guys just tell us, like, how did this come up in your life? And then tell us about what God has done.
2: Yeah, um... Our story starts 18 months ago with our son, Bodevin's birth. <clears throat> Chloe had a typical pregnancy, and delivery went smoothly. However, after he was born, a, no- a nurse noted several red flags. We were foreign, flown to Riverbend Hospital in Eugene, and his diagnosis came after several days of testing and biopsies. Bodie was diagnosed with a gastrointestinal disease called Hirschsprung's. He had an invasive surgery six days after birth to remove a portion of his intestines that were non-functioning, and our life had been turned upside down. A month after Bodovin's birth, we were readmitted here at St. Charles due to several complications following his surgery. Halfway through this 12-day hospitalization, Chloe unintentionally discovered pornography on my phone. She had discovered my sexual sin once before, two years prior, but I'd lied about my behavior to protect myself, and I told her this hadn't happened before in our marriage. From day one of our relationship, I had lied. I had told her pornography was never an issue in my life, but this time, on Mother's Day, she knew that that was no longer the case, and I couldn't deny it. I left the hospital and I sat in my car, weeping. In this moment, I was so angry I was angry at the enemy for attacking my family and I was angry at God for letting this destruction happen to us at our most vulnerable time. I decided to call my dad, who knew nothing of my addiction, and for the first time in my life I confessed the sin of my sexual brokenness to someone. My dad's grace and love for me came at quite a shock. I'd always believed if you really knew me, you could never really love me. And this phone call was the first moment of this false belief becoming undone. I then called Andrew, who really didn't know me, but generously met with me for prayer, stabilized my trembling body and spirit, and helped me build a network of care and a plan to move forward. This experience a glimpse instilled a glimpse of real and tangible hope for me. I then joined a pure desire group about six weeks after my exposure and I've been a part of a group ever since. These communities have helped me face my reality and have opened my eyes to the fact that I'm not a broken person, but I learned a broken way of living. I learned that pornography wasn't the actual problem like I'd always thought, but it was just the pseudo-solution, my treatment of choice, and now I was finally on the right path to discovering what I was treating. I was informed that my childhood wounds likely contributed to my sexual addiction. I was exposed to pornography by a neighbor around seven to eight years old, and the seed was planted that would later resurface after puberty. Like many of you, growing up in the dawn of technology, my parents were innocently blind to the evil that the internet offered me in my pocket. My parents divorced before I was two, and I fell through the cracks between my stepdad and my biological dad, never having a father that truly knew the depths of who I was and what I struggled with. Growing up as a Christian kid in a small community and living in a rigid home, I felt pressure to be perfect and good and therefore I learned to hide my imperfections. In my family, emotions were rarely talked about and difficult emotions were often expressed through anger. Time and time again, the message was reinforced that emotions were bad and unsafe furthering my felt need to run from them altogether. In pure desire groups, I learned that pornography and masturbation had become my way of avoiding my emotions and coping with my need to be seen as perfect. These realizations alone set me free from the lifelong shame story that if I only prayed more, tried harder, and memorized more scripture, then I would be holy enough for God to release me from my bondage. My intent is not to say that these events justify my sexual addiction at all. I remorsefully take complete ownership and responsibility of my sinful behavior, and also, at the same time, whenever one of these realizations from my past would surface, I felt as if God had removed a layer of scales from the lens through which I viewed life. Through this pure desire community, I've also learned how to hold my wife's pain and how to embrace and care for her emotions. This was difficult for me early on and complicated our healing journey, but I've learned to no longer minimize my sin or minimize her hurt. I can now sit with her in her pain, and in doing so, she can fully grieve the loss of the man and marriage she thought she had. Chloe didn't sign up for this to be our story, but I'm so thankful to God for giving me such a gracious wife that I utterly don't deserve, a wife who's embraced her own healing journey and a wife who's chosen to believe that I can become a healthy and more whole version of myself. At the beginning of my story, I shared that on my day of exposure, I felt so much anger towards Satan for, let, for destroying my family and anger at God for letting this destruction happen to us. But looking back, I realized my theology was broken. It wasn't the enemy that brought me into the light. He would have wanted me to stay in the darkness for several more decades, letting my sin grow deeper and deeper until it caused irreparable death and our marriage and destruction in the lives of our children, perhaps even repeating the generational pattern of constant divorce in both our families. But I now understood that it was actually God's love that brought me into the light. He revealed this to me through Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. My child... Don't ignore it when the Lord disciplines you. And don't be discouraged when he corrects you. For the Lord corrects those he loves. Just as a father corrects a child in whom he delights. God loved me, my wife, and my children enough to intervene. And today, I thank God that I'm living in the light. It's so freeing to no longer be trapped in fear, isolation, and the hopelessness that nothing will work. I have... 18 months of sobriety and freedom from my addiction. I can confidently stand before my wife and say I'm not perfect. I don't have it all figured out, but the sinful strongholds that once had me on a leash have been healed. More importantly, I'm learning how to be the husband that my wife deserves and the present father that my children need. In many ways, we've been healed, and in many ways, our marriage is still healing. And this journey has been extremely difficult. Our enemy prowls around, and fighting back is going to be messy. But I so wish I could go back and willingly and courageously have stepped into the light. And so I would encourage anyone struggling with sexual brokenness in any form, there's grace and there's real hope. And it's our intention here at Riverbend that through groups from Pure Desire, we can be an avenue to help others experience healing.
3: Good morning. There's
1: a lot of you today. <laughs> All right. Our son, Bodevin's story had crushed my spirit. Mm-hmm. Nothing could have prepared us for those first few months of his life in and out of the hospital. We lived in a state of hypervigilance, knowing we, that we couldn't afford to miss a thing. I would sit by his hospital bed, afraid to even touch him, and devastated by the story, marked by so much pain. He often felt more like a hospital patient than my son. Every time I thought the worst of Bodhi's suffering was behind us, there was another pain-filled moment that left me reeling, questioning if I'd ever be able to exhale. I felt helpless and horrified. I'd never witnessed suffering like that before. I was ashamed for how hard it was for me to accept the reality of his disease and felt isolated by my experience of it all. How could God let this happen? Within a one-month span, I took on two new titles, The Mother of a Medically Complex Child and Betrayed Spouse. The trauma from these two realities left me flailing, unable to get my thoughts straight, let alone put words to how excruciating the pain was. I remember thinking that I had two options. I would try to forgive and force myself to move on, forever living as a shell of myself, haunted by the reality of Sebastian's addiction, or I would leave and deal with the consequences of divorce with two small children. The first book I picked up in this season was A Grace Disguised by Jerry Sitzer. And within the trauma I was experiencing, I started to gain language for my pain. I also realized that stepping into what God had for me required me to open my eyes and take an honest look at my reality. I was terrified of the unknown parts of Sebastian's addiction, but as Sitzer says in his book, I had to face my fear and pain squarely. I settled into the fact that my circumstances were as bad as I was experiencing them, and I learned to be gentle with myself, to let the waves of grief come as they may, and to sit in the quiet with God so he could mend the shattered parts of my heart. I share all of this to give context for where I was at when I first walked into a Betrayal and Beyond group. I was desperate for help, desperate for a path, and desperate for hope. I was so raw that for the first time in my life, I didn't care what anyone thought of me. There was no may- way to make light of it. In hindsight, God used my unfiltered state to bring me back to Him so that I approached Him with, full- with the fullness of my anger and despair. He was safe. I knew I couldn't afford to not take God at His word. I began to envision myself walking into the throne room and Jesus reaching out to hold my face as I wept. He had given me several visions of this scene during our toughest moments in the hospital with Bodhi, and it was soothing to my soul. He was not afraid or burdened by my grief. I was safe in his care to be exactly what I needed to be, and I knew I could trust him with the outcome of my story. Betrayal and beyond helped me start to process my grief, make sense of my lifelong story, and ultimately come back to myself and God. I got really clear on the ploys the enemy had used against me my entire life, many of which were exploited by Sebastian's betrayal. I was able to identify that through most of Sebastian and I's relationship, I had felt emotionally disconnected and alone because he had used pornography to cope and with to cope with and avoid his own challenging emotions, he often wasn't emotionally present or safe for me either. Mm
3: -hmm.
1: The message that I had received from this dynamic was that my emotions were a burden and a weakness. Mm -hmm. It was a slow fade, but within the last three years of our marriage before Sebastian's exposure, I had almost completely lost touch with my true self. Mm -hmm. I didn't have the words for it at the time, but I look back and I see that I was disillusioned by a false understanding of what it meant to be resilient. Mm To put it frankly, I was numb. I condemned beautiful parts of myself and became small in order to be a good wife. I had it all wrong. Through the weekly content and practices of my Betrayal and Beyond group, God started to reclaim these lost parts of me. He began to make me whole. Similarly, I also got a vision for the... Similarly, I also got a a vision of the man I believed God created Sebastian to be, and it became an anchor of hope for me throughout this recovery journey. And although our story has been tumultuous and very much a slow miracle, I am grateful for the tender and present man that sits next to me today.
0: Mm.
1: The past 18 months have undoubtedly held the deepest pain, and at the same time, I would never go back. Our eyes have been opened and we've been reoriented reoriented on the things of Jesus, desiring all of our life to be, to be desperately dependent on him. We are here because we, are bo- we both committed to the, the recovery process and because God is faithful to redeem. For the hurting people in the room, I want you to know that God cares about the intricacies of your story and he will never abandon you. <laughs> Pursue him in your pain. It's worth it to lean in and to trust him at his word. I have full confidence that he will meet you exactly where you're at. You're safe in his care. Thank you. <laughs>
4: um, thank you guys. My is Chris. Um, some of you, might have heard my story at the men's retreat a few weeks ago. Um, it took me about 75 minutes to share my story. <laughs> and I'll try and be slightly shorter today. Um, <clears throat> my story starts in childhood when I had some very painful experiences that caused me then to develop false beliefs about myself and who God was. Um, that changed my perspective on life. I learned that my worth was based off of my performance and people's perception of me. Um, I learned to hide anything that uh, I felt I needed to be ashamed of. As I grew up I uh, started using sexual sin to numb the pain of living a double life, and hiding. Um, And then I carried that into adulthood, and never felt comfortable sharing that with anyone who I thought cared about me. I carried it into my marriage, um, and carried that double life, and those false beliefs with me. Um, Over time, the strain of living that double life caused me to also add many other unhealthy coping mechanisms uh, to sexual sin. Um, and I believe that that God saw me and saw where I was headed and um, in his love and mercy he decided to break me before I could break myself. Um, Uh, A little over a year ago, um, Sarah found out the truth about my sexual sin. I moved out, uh, moved in with my parents, was completely lost and uh, considering suicide. Um, But God reached down and and caught me through people like Sebastian and Andrew. And... um, He led me to pure desire. During that really confusing time, uh, I wanted more than anything to just tell Sarah everything. Um, But I believe that that God knew that I, in doing that, I would rid myself of guilt and shame, but that that was only half of the pain that needed to be reconciled. So he led me to a process through Pure Desire called Full Disclosure. Full Disclosure is a process that after a time of intensive counseling and establishing stability and sobriety for me and support for both of us, um, Sarah and I found a time to meet with our counselors, and I read her a complete and honest disclosure of all my sexual sins and any secrets I've been keeping from her. Um importantly for me full disclosure required that I come to a place of fully accepting God's plan for what would happen afterwards that I accepted as God's plan whatever Sarah would decide going forward it required me to step into a light and not just rid myself of guilt and shame, but also to give Sarah the chance to give her the dignity to have a choice when she had all the information. Um, it was that night that um, God showed me his love and grace through Sarah. Um mm. Uh, her response basically showed me that um, that God must love me a lot to see me, to see my soul, not just my sin. Um, Since then, I have moved back in, and we've made some huge changes to our relationship. Obviously, there's a lot of pain, a lot of work, a lot of um, things that, that, that Sarah and I deal with and, and we deal with them together. Um, but I am not done and I have not arrived and maybe I'm a front runner but it's only because I got a head start. <laughs> so um, I'm facilitating groups this fall because I need community and I need people to come and be in community with me. Now for me, um, a healthy whole life means that I am honest with my brokenness and I face the consequences without running, knowing that God loves me despite of that pain. And that true love shared with Sarah means that she chooses me in my imperfection, not because of my perfection. If I could go back, I wish I would have come to Disclosure voluntarily. Um, but I am so thankful for the pain that, got you, that God used to bring me there and his design in bringing Sarah and I back together.
3: There are a lot of reminders and triggers that we walk through on a daily basis. And this week alone was um, evidence just that the enemy was scared of us speaking today. Um, and I had this all thing typed out perfectly. Um, and then we came to church this morning, and I watched our children just play in the pews. Um, And when Chris's double life came to the surface, I felt so much pain that I didn't think my reality would consist of anything other than my pain. And I hated that story for our boys. And seeing the reality of our life today is what motivated me to stand up here with a huge fear of speaking in front of people. to just declare that there is hope for whatever story you're walking in. Um, The journey is very hard and painful. Um, As Chris shared, we had a huge turning point with disclosure and this willingness to step into the truth, and for Chris to come to that point um, where he was willing to lose me and the boys. Um, to tell us the full truth. Um, That, you know, everything Andrew talked about stepping into the light, there was a lot of waiting for me up until that point where I sat in wondering how much more there could be to this story. Um, That's where a huge part of the portrayal beyond work came in, where I would not have been in a healthy place to spend five months in um, pretty much silence as we were, we were separated. Um, I had a big load of carrying the weight of taking care of our boys and creating normalcy for them. Um, And yet God took me on this path where he came near to me in a way that was palpable, where I had been a Christian my whole life and the scriptures had never come to life like they did in this time of mourning and grief and he came to my side and tended to my wounds and he made me lie down in green pastures while he fought my biggest battles and I remember him giving me this image of this blanket that was wrapped around me and the boys and I was well aware of this dark battle that was raging around us but the boys were just playing completely unfazed And that has carried through this dark, dark time until we got to a place um, where the full truth could come to the surface and where he could willingly step in to the truth. And that moment in that room where Chris shared everything with me, that should have ended our marriage right there. That should have been, I had every right to to walk away. Um, And instead, he brought this intimacy to us that has lasted since then in a brand new marriage, not a marriage that's just been patched up where I am his accountability partner and I live in fear every day. And I have no, there's nothing more than that. There is complete newness to our relationship. Um, Pure desire, I know we keep throwing plugs in there for it, Um, but it's a different form of work. I know that Chris is very good at work Um, he's rewarded for it, and that was not reassuring to me to have him in a program, that he could check the boxes and do the homework, Um, but this is different. It's to the heart, and um, the people that have come alongside us are what has carried us through from that moment of truth forward to where I can release that he is entrusted by strong men, men that are broken, but that I respect, I have full respect for Sebastian. I have full respect for Steve. I have full respect for Ryan and all the men that have come out into the light. That is not what you lose when you step forward. And I just speak to whoever's story is unfinished. He has not abandoned you. He is just not done. But he is there, and he is with you. you.
0: Will you please join me and stand to your feet? The end of this gathering represents a new beginning that's coming for our community, where there's room for many more people like you up here to come forward, to step into the light, to be healed by the Lord Jesus. It will require time, it will require devotion, but make no mistake, these are prime examples of what God can do and how God can heal and what real victory looks like. And you can be a part of this community. So we are closing this gathering with just a final song of meditation. This was actually prepared by Steve and Marcy, who are also part of our team that is running Pure Desire. This is just like an anthem and a cry that we think really closes this series well. We feel led by the Spirit into this. So would you please just join me and open your hands and let's pray. Father, we bless your name. We thank you for how you have gone before us. We thank you for how you have saved us through Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that by the blood of the cross, you have redeemed, you have purified us from all sin. And you've also set us free from captivity. We don't have to live in a prison of shame and sin forever but we've actually been set free by you king jesus to step into the light to be healed to make be made whole so lord we bless your name and we praise your name in jesus name so as marcy and steve lead us in this song i encourage you to just maintain like stay in a moment uh, of just response and let these words be sung over you as, as your next prayer.